I'm Holiday. I'm Taraday. I'm Independence Day. Oh, a microphony. And a phony at the mic. Get Whoa! Ah. <laughs> and now, on with the opera. Let joy be unconfined. Let there be dancing in the streets, drinking in the saloons, and necking in the parlor. Play, Don. Would you welcome Mr. Warm? Picture it. <laughs> Sicily, 1912. Hi, everybody. Welcome once again to Killers, Cults, and Nutjobs 2.0, where we cover all crime. I am, as always, the host, the great white snark, Scotty J. And seated across from me is the twisted and beautiful Monica. Hi. Oh, we're wrapping up Leopold and Loeb tonight, folks. I, I thank you all for sticking with us through this incredible twisted journey of Chicago crime in the 1920s. Um, I wonder if they're going to do anything for the anniversary. I don't know. Um, see, the thing is, is... Um, God... I'm space. I'm spacing bad tonight, folks. But hold on. Um, Clarence Darrow. We're going to talk about him tonight. Their lawyer. Um, there. I think the. I know there's a park that's kind of the remnants of the 1893 Expo. The you know the one we talked about with um. Holmes. Yeah. Holmes. You're right. There's a little piece of it left, and Darrow used to go down there you know, in the afternoon and walk through the park. And it's over by the Museum of Science and Industry. I want to say it's Jackson Lagoon. Yes, it's about the only thing left standing in yeah. a, a, little, a little piece of Chicago supernatural history here. People have reported seeing Clarence Darrow's ghost walking on the bridge there in the park. That's cool. It is. Chicago's Chicago has a great history, but she's also got a great paranormal history too kind of like philly yeah like if you know the chicago history museum i guess you know whatever name is for that or like chicago library system will you know have something for the hundredth would be most likely um i don't know if the chicago historical society will yeah i i can take a look i i've been wanting to go um go up there because they've got the uh, bed lincoln died on yeah, so just well, I, I got to see it when I went to Springfield for the 150 of his um assassination. I got to see the bed, and that was kind of cool. But um, they've got artifacts from the Great Fire there, like a, a the heat twisted yeah. coke mm-hmm. bottle and big clumps of nails that are still fused together. Oh yeah. Yeah, um, even today, you know, hundred and some years later after the fire, guys digging in the city, putting them new buildings, still come across remnants of the fire. Kind of like Centralia. Just I'm glad it got there before they closed that off. Yes. I was asking about going there. I'm like, I, like, yeah, they have it blocked off now pretty much. Right. I, I've heard about Centralia. Yeah. Yeah, but. 2010. Right, and that fire started. <laughs> and that fire started what? 1960s? Yeah. Uh-huh. See, that's what happens when you try to 
put out a fire that gets down into the coal seams that are under your town. Yeah, well, that's what I said. Somebody probably threw like some match or something or cigarette. And- One of the theories I heard was a cigarette. Mm-hmm. Um, another theory I heard was um, they were burning trash and some of the, uh-huh. you know, some of the embers from that got down into a seam and just. Yeah, because I got to see some of the, you know, the smoke or whatever coming from the ground. Right. And I mean, it's still going. Yeah, well, which things that they cut it off now, though. But right. All right, yeah. folks. It was a bucket list thing. So glad I was able to do it. Yeah, um, I heard about it on a uh, a dollop podcast. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, I've been going back and listening to old episodes. So. All right, folks, we're going to get back into Leopold Loeb. Now, last time, as you remember, the boys were picked up they were just being questioned and they started ratting each other out <laughs> it reminds me of a time my, my buddy mark and i were were supposed to have like well i beat the shit out of my brother jeremy because he was being an idiot and the Bourbonnet police put us in like two separate rooms to interrogate us. But the walls were thin so we could hear each other being interrogated. Because they would come into me and go, you know, they'd question me first and then they'd go next door and they're like, well, your buddy said, and he's like, no, he didn't. So then they'd come into me and they're like, well, your buddy said, I went, no, he didn't. I heard every word you said. Yeah, prove it to us. Hey, Mark, how you doing? Okay, Scott, how you doing? <laughs> I was like, uh, if you want to try this, you might want to put us in like thicker walled rooms. Or put us in like two separate rooms where there's enough space in between so we don't hear what you're saying to each other. Yeah, bourbon and cops hated me. I can't imagine you're the first ones to discover that either, which makes them like it's even sadder than that they would still be doing that. Yeah, well, they also took my pizza that night, so they had to pay me for a pizza. They still owe you one, then, right? No, no. What happened was uh, when I had to go to court for um, when I had to go to court for attacking my brother. Mm-hmm. The judge was like, "Is there anything else you'd like to say?" I'm like, "Yeah, this officer." Stole my dinner that night. And the officer tried to play it off. And I was like, well, I have the receipt right here. I, I kept the receipt. Uh-huh. So the judge says, can I see the receipt? And I brought it up to the judge. And she looked it over. And she looked at the time. At the, she's like, "How?" She's like, what happened? I'm like, well, as we're walking out of the police station, they're like, hey, thanks for buying us dinner. And she's the. The judge looks over at the officer and says, did you say this? And he's an officer of the court. He has to reply to the judge. She goes, yes, I did. She goes, you owe this man a pizza. And my stepdad couldn't believe that I argued for a pizza in court. Well, it's also more of the comment they made after. Right. And that's like, you know. So he he gave me the money in front of the judge. (laughs) Good. And then as we're walking out of the courthouse, my dad's like, my, my stepdad, he's like, well, what are you going to do now? I'm like, I'm going to go eat my damn pizza. Yeah. Uh-huh. 
And this is back when Little Caesars, you could buy one pizza for five bucks and get a second one free. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, that, oh God, that, that was some good pizza back in the day. I wanted my pizza. All right. So the police, they began their interrogation of, of Leopold Loeb. Now, this was pre-Miranda days, so they answered all the questions, you know, except when it came to who delivered the killing blow. Now, this is where they decided to turn on each other. Leopold, Leopold said Loeb did it. Loeb said Leopold did it. To this day, we still don't know. My get, my thing, I believe that uh, Leopold delivered the killing blow. Because if Loeb's driving, Bobby's going to know, know his cousin, so he's going to get in the car. Yeah. It makes more was, sense. Was that what the book said too? I think that the, the book said that um, something like that. Loeb was driving. Leopold was in the back seat, and from the way that they inferred it, it was Nathan Leopold that that delivered the killing blow. Now, being cooperative, the boys took the police on a tour of where they committed the crime, stashed the body, and burned the rug in bloody clothes. Yeah, see, over here is where we drove down the street at a high mile, at a high speed, and tossed out the uh, tossed out the chisel. Over here is you know, it's kind of like Chicago now has these um, mafia tours that they, they do, or where, where they take you through like work. Where all the old buildings in Capone's day stood. Capone's. Oh, the safe. I get right. Goddamn Geraldo. Man, I was hoping for something cool, and you know. Well, now that built that uh, hotel they were at the Hawthorne. Uh-huh. That was Capone's headquarters. Uh, yeah. So. And they were hoping for something, and I bet he was laughing from the grave. Yeah, I think I remember. Like, I remember watching it. Me too. I fell asleep, and then they woke me up for like when it was time to go to bed because I get, yeah. No, I watched it. Like, so what they find? You're like nothing. I'm like, oh, yeah, right. Yeah. Road maps. Uh-huh. Now the boys took the police to the spot where they dumped the evidence. Like I said, this was all pre-Miranda warning, so everything they did was helpful and legal. You, you gotta love that, you know. That pre-Miranda, they're like, yeah, we did it. We'll show you where. We'll take you on a tour. We'll buy you lunch while we're at it. Now, the police wanted experts to take a look at them to see if there was, a ch- if there was any chance that they could argue for an insanity plea. But the experts found nothing wrong with them. After hearing this, Jacob Loeb sought out help from attorney Charles Darrow. Now, for those of you who might have gone to law school, you, you know, uh, you, you've heard of Darrow. The Scopes trial, a couple other high-profile cases. Now, the Loeb's family only had one request, and that was to make sure Frank did not receive the death penalty. They had other attorneys helping 
with the case, but they wanted Daryl to go, listen, um, as much as we like these two guys, we really don't want our, well, it was his nephew. He goes, we really don't want, I don't want my nephew to go to get the death sentence. Can you kind of help him out there a little bit? So once Daryl entered the case, he got the boys transferred to Cook County Jail. Now, before this, they were being held in one of Chicago's exclusive hotels where the family had access to them, bringing them silk pajamas and meals from their favorite restaurant. God, that's cushy, man. Makes you almost want to go out and kill somebody. I, no. In the no. time machine. <laughs> You're right. Well, first I'd have to go back to Sutter's Mill and get some gold. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then jump forward in time a little bit to get the gold essayed at whatever market value price it was in the 1920s. Mm-hmm. And then become rich enough, you know. By that point, it's like, yeah, it's not too- it's too At this point, I might as well go to World War One and uh, go find the... Um, the British sniper who almost had who had Hitler in his crosshairs. Uh-huh. Yeah. A little more this way. <laughs> well, no, he he had him dead center in the crosshairs, but he Hitler was so pathetic. He's like, eh, I'm not going to kill him. I've been like, no, shoot the shoot the uh-huh. pull the damn trigger. Now, once the transfer took place, Daryl got access to his clients, and the boys were were still brought their favorite meals. Now, one thing he said was not to answer the state attorney's questions. Once they were in jail, Richard got along with the other prisoners while Nathan didn't socialize with anyone. On June 5th, divers found the typewriter in the Jackson Park Lagoon where the boys said they threw it. Now, they said they took the typewriter there, they pulled all the keys out and tossed them all into the lagoon. God, I wonder if the keys are still down there to this day. Huh, I'm, I'm thinking. Right, Trey. Right. And, and I mean, I, I drive through that park to go to the Museum of Science and Industry. Mm-hmm. So, it's... Get your swim trunks on. <laughs> right, you know. I'd have to bring my son with me. You know, he, he'd be up for that. Now, the keys have been, you know, the police found the rental car, which had not been cleaned out, and blood was still seen in the car. Now, with all the evidence piling up, Crow went before the grand jury. The jury came back with indictments on 11 counts of murder and 16 counts of kidnapping. Each count was eligible for the death penalty. On June 11th, the boys entered a plea of not guilty. The judge set the trial for August 4th. Darrow's strategy was for the boys to plead not guilty, which would mean a bench trial. Darrow figured it would be easier to convince a jury, a, sorry, a judge instead of a jury. The judge heard this motion on July 21st. The judge would pass sentence on July 23rd. At 10 a.m., the opening arguments began. Crow argued that the boys were aware of the crime. They planned the crime down to the smallest details, carried it out with precision, and were aware of the crime. The evidence would support the state's case. Darrow next claimed that it was Leopold who carried out the plans and the crime. Lug was just his loyal follower, one who would do anything to earn his affection and attention. 
the state opened with Bobby's parents. The next day, the state introduced more witnesses and the evidence against them began to stack up. That had to have been rough for Bobby's parents to take the stand. Oh, well, yeah, for... Well, right, but I mean, yeah, you think yeah. about it. You're making them relive that night, which mm-hmm. wasn't that far away. Yeah. Um, Mom, the, the, from what I understand, the family... After the boys were arrested, the family moved out of the house and stayed in a hotel. They refused to go back to the house. Yeah, and you have enough money for that, too. Oh, hell yeah. Like, it was an option. Um, I'm living at the, um, well, I don't know. They're trying to get the name off of it in Chicago. Um, God, I'm trying to think of the one where the, the, where the, um, that was used as the, uh, the Palmer House, that's it. Sheridan used it as his headquarters in Chicago since when he was commander of the um, Army of the West yeah. after the Civil War. So, but they lost most of their records in the Great Fire. So, you know, I'll be at the Palmer House, best room. Okay. The weekend before the trial began, a report was leaked to the press that challenged the mental state of the defendants. William White, one of Darrow's experts, came to the stand. White stated that to understand the crime, you had to look at how the defendants acted with each other. Using childhood nicknames, White argued that Loeb was enthralled by Leopold, doing whatever he asked to gain his attention and affections. On cross, Fro dismantled those statements. They just, they're just enamored with each other. Just look at them. On August 19th, closing arguments began. Both attorneys repeated their statements, hoping to sway the judge to their side. Arguments ended on August 28th. The judge held off sentencing until September 10th to weigh on the evidence. When the judge reconvened court on the 10th, he sentenced Leopold and Loeb to life in prison plus 99 years for kidnapping. On September 11th, the boys entered Joliet Prison. I, I've actually been to that prison. Well, I've, I've been to the women's side of it because uh, on in the women's prison, they do a, a haunted house every Halloween. Oh, yeah. Oh, it was cool. I kept singing Blues Brothers songs through the whole prison. Mm-hmm. Well, the Eastern State does that, too. Yeah, I, that's one place I want to check when I next yeah. go to Philly. Yeah, it's like my dorm was right near it. Oh, nice. There's always like a whole lineup. But yeah. We all like, of course, I had like too much work to do. <laughs> like one day everybody was like on over. And I was like, oh, of course. Because literally, like, didn't have to find parking, didn't have to, you know, all that. Right. Literally, you could just walk across over. the street. Yeah. Like, well, not quite, but yeah, definitely close enough that you wouldn't be like, oh my God, we're going to get there. And I never went to the haunted house one, so good one, me for that. Oh well. <laughs> Once in prison, Nathan was sent to work in the fiber shop while Richard was sent to the furniture shop. They were allowed to see each other and talk to each other. On September 17th, they took part in a prison concert. Oh. After that, the warden decided to separate them based on a policy in the prison. Loeb had a visit from his mother on October 6th then found out his father died on October 27th of a heart attack. He was denied a pass to attend. 
Okay, well, <laughs> he would. If he would have gone, he would have been under like guard. Well, no, I mean not going. Like I wouldn't let him go either. But that means like blamed it on. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. You know, the, the family. Um, the family didn't. Um, I, I'm sure the stress of everything uh-huh. got the dad, but no, no, honey, you're not to blame for dad's heart attack. No, I'd be blaming him. Oh, I'd be. Yeah. I'd be like his brother going, I would have been his brother in the back going, uh, listen here, you little shit. You're the reason dad had a heart attack. Yeah. Now live with this for the rest of your life behind these bars. Mm-hmm. Oh, and guess what? You're not going to be buried in with the rest of the family in the cemetery. And you're also out of the will. <laughs> oh, yeah. In May of 1925, Nathan was moved to Statesville Prison and started working in the shoe shop. He soon violated the rules and was placed in solitary confinement. It is rumored he was part of an escape attempt in 1926. In May of 1928, Nathan was working in the library, but was still a discipline problem. In 1930, <laughs> Richard is transferred to Statesville and is reunited with Nathan in 1931. You, you had, I think you made this, um, made this comparison about uh the the Columbine shooters, and you yeah, know, it, each other and all. well, if if, if they would have gotten away from each other, oh yeah, you know, well after like, yeah, I mean, well, one if like they had never met, right? But like I still think like with one with like Columbine, I think Howard still would have ended up being a complete whack job and doing something, but if. They had met, but Columbine hadn't happened, and they had gone their separate ways. I think, you know, um, Claybold would have been, like, ended up going to college, you know, in Arizona, doing all that stuff, finding people there to hang out with. Right, and it's the same. Yeah, dude, Eric, whatever happened to that guy, you know, kind of deal. You know? Well, and it's also... You know, you look at these two, when they're not around each other, Loeb gets along great with everybody. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, Leopold is like antisocial, doesn't fit in, believes he's better than everyone. Yeah. So it, it, it's, I don't know, it, it's just weird. Yeah. So, okay. Richard was again well liked in prison while Nathan was seen as antisocial. Like you just said. Yeah. Thank you very much. <laughs> no problem. Yeah. While in prison, Richard noticed that there were prisoners who never graduated from high school. He petitioned the warden to start a GED program in the prison. The program was successful and eventually spread to all the prisons in Illinois. Nathan and Richard taught the classes and graded the papers. January of 1936. Richard said he was going to grade some papers. He was later found naked and dead in the shower, which is not how I want to be found. Why well, don't want to go like Elvis in the toilet? Uh, that's in the top five ways I want to die. <laughs> okay. Hey, it made the top five. All right. Uh-huh. Yep. I'm. I'm. Not, this is a family show, so I'm not going to say what number one is. 
most people who know me can is probably already out there going, I know how he wants to die. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the coroner looked at him and they found 57 stab wounds made by a straight razor on his body. The man who murdered him, James Day, was a former cellmate. Now, before the murder, Richard would share his money with James. Um, they used to get like money sent to him in prison so they could buy like little snacks and shit in prison. Well, the warden cracked down on it and he couldn't, because the warden cracked down on it, Loeb couldn't share with James. Now, James claimed that Richard made sexual advances on him, which he turned down. He decided to kill him so the advances would end. Now, it's rumored that Nathan hired James to kill Richard. The reasoning behind this theory is Richard began to change his story. He was going to say that Nathan was the one who killed Bobby, which would work in Nathan's favor should they ever be granted parole. If Richard placed the weapon in Nathan's hands, Nathan could stay in prison for the rest of his life. Richard had to be taken out to prevent this from happening. Now, Nathan, after the death, was transferred to the x-ray department and in 44 became a test subject for the polio vaccine. Our tax dollars at work, folks. We got this deadly disease called polio. FDR had it. Richard Sock, or Dr. Sock, comes up with the vaccine. But we got to test it on someone. Well, you know, we got these buildings full of people called prisoners, and uh, they're not really doing anything. But if they volunteer, then they could also try to get, it, it could be used as, like, leverage for parole. That's what they were hoping for. Now, okay, Nathan still tried to pick up men in prison, but he was turned down. Slowly, he began to cultivate a redemption case. Now, in 49, Governor Adelaide Stevenson reduced sentences for prisoners, which made Leopold eligible for parole. When Leopold came before the board in 53, he blamed everything on Loeb. Why not? He's dead. He can't defend himself. He's the one who did it all. His first parole hearing was on January 8th, 1953, and, well, he was denied. His attorney said he could get clemency, so they began to work on an appeal. While doing this, he began to work on his image. In 1955, he wrote an article for the Saturday Evening Post where he once again blamed Richard for everything. Which happens, if your partner's dead, you get to cultivate the story to tell the people to make him look like a complete boob. Perfection. He was, you're right. Well, and it, uh, it happened with, um, okay, for the longest time, the only version of the OK Corral story we had was Wyatt Earp's version because he outlived everybody. Same thing happened with Custer. Um, they had a court of inquiry like a year, year or two after the battle. And they were trying to blame Marcus Reno for it, but all the officers kind of huddled together and defended Reno, but placed the blame all on Custer. 
He's dead. He can't defend himself. Well, what they didn't count on was Custer's wife, Libby, you know, defending his image and his honor all the way up until her death. And I think she made it to almost World War II. Boy, she outlived him a long time. So at 55, okay, he was denied for parole again in 55 and 56. In July of 1957, he appeared with his attorney, Elmer Gertz, and he presented a revisionist history of what happened with the crime. Well, the clemency board said, uh, we're not buying it. Back in the whole ego. In February of 58, he went before the parole board again, and he gave a statement. He was finally granted parole on February 20th, 1958. But he had some restrictions. No alcohol, no contact with former prisoners. He had a report to a parole officer. Could not own a gun or a car. He had a 10.30 p.m. curfew. Could not participate in any public appearances or activities except for his memoirs, which were published in 1958. Can't forget the memoirs, right? Wasn't it? Well, we'll probably cover it when we when we get to Berkowitz, but I think at one point with Berkowitz, they passed a law that said the killers couldn't profit from their crime. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I figured you would know. That's, that's why you're on the show, hon. Oh, thank you. I didn't think it was like that. Shield, I, I, yeah, well, no, I, 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 I think I remember. Um, I was watching something on Berkowitz, and they, they said New York had passed a law that, um, if you're in prison for a crime, you can't profit from, like, selling your memoirs or whatever from the crime. The money would would end up going to the family. I think I'm gonna have to look into it when I start researching Berkowitz. Too bad OJ allegedly <laughs> didn't pull the crime off in New York because, well, no, fucking Goldman got him on that one, man. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. God, Goldman wants his, just face it, OJ, you're, you're going to be um, Goldman's bit, your bitch. Now, thir- Thursday, Oh, Thursday, March 13th, 1956, Nathan was released. The next day, he boarded a plane for Puerto Rico. He was like, see ya. Bye-bye. I spent enough time in Chicago. I'm getting out of here. He lived comfortably on the island and continued to break his restrictions. Of course he did. He's in Puerto Rico. They can't touch him there. Also, he he worked for several doctors because he was an X-ray tech. So, you know, he had the he had the skills. He had the skills to pay the bills. In sixteen one, he married a woman. Her name was Trudy, I think. But he still pursued men for sex, and she was like, "Eh, what the hell." Now, uh, 71, he came back to Chicago for a visit because he probably figured this was his last chance to see Chicago before, you know, he died. Uh, he, he did get sick on the trip. He was in the hospital. 
uh, once he got out of the hospital, he went back to Puerto Rico, where he died on August 29th, 1971. Now, I know... I don't know what happened. Uh, I don't think Loeb was buried with his family. Because I, I know Nathan is buried in Puerto Rico. I know that much. Bobby, Bobby Franks and his family and the Leopold and Loeb family are all buried in the same cemetery on, oh man, I don't feel like wheeling my chair over to the bookcase and getting the book, but um, I, I know, um, I know the families were all buried in the same cemetery, not far from each other, actually. So if you ever come to Chicago, we'll, we'll do a graveyard trip there. Yay. Well, I also want to go because, um, there's a cemetery in Chicago. It's got, uh, Stephen Douglas's tomb that I've never been to. Yeah. And and there's there's another cemetery in Chicago. I think it's the one that Capone is buried in. That's got a lot of the um um big movers and shakers. Well also mob history, but some of the guys who brought like the 1893 fair to Chicago and some of the um like Shed, the guy the aquarium's named after and other stuff. So but that, um, also looking around uh, on the south end of Chicago, in, in the uh, Hyde Park neighborhood where they all lived, some of the buildings are still standing. Um, the Frank's house is now like apartments, condominiums. Um, the the Leopold house, the only things left standing of that are the garage. They had a huge garage is now turned into condos and like one of the walls that went around the place is still standing. And I want to say the Leopold or, or the Loeb mansion is gone. I know the school is gone. So, you know, people move out and stuff happens and, you know, people didn't take the upkeep. So a lot of these places got tore down and, I know one of them lasted up until like the early 2000s. I want to say it was a school that lasted until the early 2000s and and got finally tore down. Probably had so much asbestos in it. Yeah. It was killed everybody anyway. Right. You know, remember, asbestos was supposed to, you know, be this wonderful drug and, you know, people are hacking up lungs and. <laughs> School children, <laughs> they all turned out like Ralph Wiggum, you know. Yeah. Uh, we're going to wrap this one up, folks. Um, Spotify is where you can find us if you got it. Um, The Facebook page, join us there. We, you know, we, we kind of update as much as we can on different anniversaries and stuff. Yeah, like I said, the Myrtle, a little more going on with that now, too, down South Carolina. So. Oh, yeah. 
I yeah, I I catch so you know, I catch very little news on ten minute breaks. Well yeah. So I don't there there's a lot that's been happening that I'm just like, huh? What? Yeah, it's like that's going on. Yeah. Right. I just watched the news for, you know, how close the asteroid is to taking us out. Yeah, the big stuff. <laughs> Dane and I are both like, um, how close is the asteroid this this week? Yeah. You know what they should do for the hundredth anniversary? It's like um, they should bring out his book, the book again. You know, I'm half tempted. To look on one of the uh, used book sites I go to to see if I can find it, because mm-hmm. I did find uh, Holmes's autobiography on one of them. That's cool. It's, yeah, I have Tex Watson. I've got, um, let's see, you know, Susan Atkins' book. And I wanted to get. Dr. I wanted to get hers and uh, Squeaky Froms. Yeah, but the ones that like were right out of print and they brought them back in print, they're now they're affordable. And um, Jeffrey Dahmer's dad's book. Oh, um, nice! He's like a little updated. Um, because he was, you know, he, since he's still alive, he was able to work with the right. I know. Well, I um, I know when I was doing the the stuff for Holmes, um, I looked up. Holmes's autobiography and I found it. And also the uh the detective that caught him. Uh-huh. I found his book. Oh cool. Yeah. Now how much were they though? <laughs> oh I God, under a hundred. Oh. Um Bogdanovich's book. Um, I wanna say the detective's book was like 70, 80 bucks. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, it was on. Uh, it was on the U site. One of my professors gave me. Yeah. But yeah, keep going. Yeah, so we're gonna wrap this up, folks. Um, I already told you where to find us. So for Killers, Cults, and Nutjobs 2.0, I'm Scotty J. Say good night, Monica. Good night, Monica. <laughs>